Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10-minute lesson series, where we gave a brief overview of a policy topic, this is meant to be a useful introduction to an area and we hope our listeners find them useful. And our interview series, where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those and today I'm joined by Michael McCarthy Flynn, Head of Policy and Advocacy with Oxfam. He's here to talk about the launch of their report, Inequality Virus, that was published last week and looks at how the pandemic has affected global inequality. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Colette. I'm, I, it's great to be here and talk about uh, these things with you. I'm sure you're very, very busy. So just, I suppose, a lot of people would, would be aware of Oxfam. They'd know of, of the shops and they'd know of some of the campaigns. But if you could just, I suppose, as, as head of policy and advocacy, just bring me a little bit through your role and, and the role of Oxfam, Oxfam in policy. Yeah, okay. So Oxfam works to tackle poverty and injustice by mobilising the power of people to build a global movement to transform lives and create lasting change. Uh, We believe that all lives are equal and that everyone has a right to a just and sustainable world in which they can thrive. To this end, we work collaboratively to support work, the work of those who challenge discrimination, exclusion, exploitation, and try to empower communities to build better lives for themselves and continue to provide direct assistance to those who are overwhelmed by crises um, so they can live with dignity. Um, But our approach to poverty reduction is grounded in tackling systematic inequality and injustice. We believe that poverty arises from a violation of people's basic human rights. When someone is denied rights to own their land, the right to education, access to basic services like clean water, a fair price for their crops, or a fair wage for the work they do, the result is poverty. So addressing poverty is political rather than merely technical. And fighting injustice and inequality is essential means to ending poverty. So that's where our policy and advocacy work comes in to tackle the political uh, reasons behind poverty. And we broadly work in four interlinking areas. We've just gone through both as Oxfam Ireland and as the wider confederation of Oxfams around the world, uh, a big strategic planning process. And we're focusing on four areas in terms of our policy and advocacy work. Economic justice, gender justice, climate justice, and accountable governance. And just to explain what we're working on in those areas and why we're working on them. Although the global economy has, in, in terms of economic justice, um, although the global economy has doubled from 1990 to 2015, the number of people earning less than $5.50 a day has barely changed. And in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the number of people earning, um, earning this um, has reduced. Uh, or has in fact risen, my apologies. Um, We believe that the current economic model based on highly unequal carbon intensive growth is also accelerating the carbon crisis or the climate crisis. Um, 
A recent report we brought out showed that the top 10% of the global population accounted for 52% of carbon emissions added to the atmosphere from 1990 to 2015. And this depleted about a third of the total amount of carbon that can be added if global heating is to be kept below 1.5 degrees, um, the goal of the Paris Agreement. Um, so the twin issues of climate change and global inequality are interlinked and must be addressed in unison. And there are two issues that we're working at, both at an Irish level, at a regional EU level, and as a global level in various multilateral uh, institutions. But also gender underlines both these issues in that worldwide women are more likely than men to be living in poverty, excluded from political processes, held back from participating in decent work and carrying out most of the unpaid care and domestic work. Well, gender-based violence also remains one of the world's most common human rights abuses. A just society is not possible unless women and girls have security and prioritise agency throughout their lives. And then finally, the last area we're working on, accountable governance, is the mechanism through which all these issues can be addressed. And at the moment, international norms and multilateral frameworks are being undermined a populist and anti-rights agendas chipping away at hard-won gains achieved by worldwide movements for women's rights and the fight against poverty. So the demand for accountable and inclusive governments has never been higher. And a just and sustainable future depends on safe, vibrant spaces, especially for civil society, that allows people to hold the powerful to account. Society needs to challenge harmful social norms and belief systems that impact poor women the most, and particularly those who experience exploitation, exclusion and crises need to be able to exercise their agency to defend, claim and realise their rights and challenge structures of inequality and injustice to build democratic, equal and sustainable societies. And this is as true of Ireland as it is of any country around the world. So that's the, the scope of our policy and advocacy work. We do this in many ways, like I'm sure similar to yourselves in Social Justice Ireland, by producing policy papers, by lobbying politicians, by trying to influence public debates about these issues, um, and by engaging the public um, and engendering their support in advocating for changes. Um, in relation to these issues. Thank you so much. That was a very comprehensive sweep in terms of, you know, for those who may not necessarily link Oxfam with a, a very strong policy perspective, you know, everybody, as I say, people on the, the street will be aware of the shops and some of the campaigns. But in terms of that high level, certainly the economic policy, um, it, it's great to hear a bit more about that. Um, so we're here to talk about the report that was released last week, the inequality virus. Um, but before we kind of get to that, this is a report that is published by Oxfam in advance of, of Davos every year. Is that correct? Yeah. So every year Oxfam brings out a global inequality report to correspond with the World Economic Forum, which is held at Davos each year. And this year it was held digitally, like most other international forums or, or meetings that we're having during the pandemic. And um, the reason why we bring it out, the World Economic Forum, although it doesn't have formal decision making power, it brings together you know, the richest, most powerful actors in the world in terms of multinational CEOs, 
political leaders, ministers of finance, um, f- billionaire philanthropists. And the meeting often sets the agenda for the next few years in terms of what global priorities are, what crises are deemed to have, you know, that that the political and, and economic spheres should be tackling. Um, and Oxfam tries to influence the narrative around this um, by bringing out a global report around global inequality. And it's something we've been doing for a number of years. And essentially our message is quite similar every year that global inequality is, is extreme. It's beyond extreme at this stage that there's massive differences between the wealth of, of a small percentage of the world, especially the billionaire class, and the majority of people who are still living in poverty. And to demonstrate that the economic system, although it's generating growth, this isn't necessarily translating into poverty reduction. And to challenge the, the, the elites in, in government and business to take action and, and to address this. And, and what we've found is while these elites are very good at recognizing the problem, I don't think I've never seen so many political leaders and billionaires recognize that global inequality is a huge crisis, is a huge problem, is tearing our societies apart. At the same time, very little practically has been done to address this issue, either globally um, or or, um, within countries and regions. And, and we come into a contradiction with this because the very people who are benefiting from this global inequality are the people who often meet at Davos. Um, so on one level, we don't expect these people to necessarily voluntarily change this, but we feel it's very important to change public narratives about the way the world is working and whether it's working for most people in the world to generate political space, to put pressure um, on our political actors to make these changes. Okay, moving on to, to this year's report. Um, I suppose at the, the beginning of the pandemic, kind of almost this time last year, um, the, it was seen as the great leveler that, you know, everybody could get it, anybody could get it. And it was, it kind of brought everyone together. Now, those of us who, who may appear sceptical, um, kind of, you know, disregarded that narrative quite early on um, in terms of those that had and could protect themselves were very much protected from the virus, whereas those particularly on low pay who had to go to work every day on frontline jobs, on services jobs, they were exposed um, and they were often the ones, as I say, were most low paid. There was a gendered dimension to it. Um, so in terms of, I suppose, the context for this year's report, we're looking at it within that, that lens, I suppose, in terms of, you know, this has been a, a, a global pandemic. It has affected across the world. Um, and it may be surprising for some that notwithstanding everything that I've talked about, the rich have somehow managed to, to almost profit from what the world is going through at the moment. Can you bring us a bit through the, the, the report, the findings of it, and um, what's different about it, I suppose, this year in terms of, of previous years and some of the, the global context for it? Yeah, um, 
Well, you're correct. This year, we, we, we looked at the impact of the pandemic on global inequality and what we're finding. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite, you know, self-explanatory when you think about it, that, that COVID is highlighting and exacerbating existing inequalities. Um, and it's, 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 it's making the situation worse. And just to share two stories before I get into the findings to emphasize the, the, the impact, the, the concept of social distancing and being able to isolate it is, is a very privileged position to be in, that you need to have space, you need to have your own room, you need to have um, a job or a social system that will be able to support your income while you, you isolate um, and not everybody in Ireland and not everybody around the world has that luxury. People in direct provision centres, people who are in poverty, um, who, you know, will be in debt, people who are in the informal economy, who have no um, social security backup, don't have that luxury um, and are in a much different situation from people who are able to work remotely, who have adequate uh, housing, et cetera. So at that level, um, there's a huge divergence of experiences. And if you compare this, if, if there's a lot of talk about vaccines at the moment, um, there's reports about that the use of private jets has increased enormously um, since lockdowns have happened. And they're being used now by the super rich to fly into places like Dubai to skip queues and use their money to, to buy vaccines, um, while the rest of us have to wait in line till, till they're provided around the world. And probably the biggest inequality that I see at the moment is around vaccines, that um, while there's a struggle to get vaccines in countries like Ireland and the EU and America, at least we're in line to get vaccines, hopefully in the next six to eight months. Whereas most of the people around the world, especially the poorest people, including frontline workers um, in countries in Africa, in, in poorer countries in Asia, etc., it looks like they won't be getting vaccines till perhaps 2022, 2023. And, and this is a life and death issue. And it comes down to economics in many ways in that while there's difficulties in the rollout of the vaccine in, in the manufacturing capacity. We actually have spare capacity in the system. Um, and if the IP, the intellectual property of vaccines, was shared with generic drug companies around the world, we would be able to roll out that capacity. Um, and people in poorer countries would be able to be vaccinated quicker, which would obviously be good for them, but ultimately it would be better for us. Um, so you can see on, on, on the level of vaccinations and how, how the, the pandemic will be ultimately ended also replicates um, the massive inequalities in our world. But to get to our, our report, yeah, what we're seeing is um, that both capital markets and, and labour markets are really determining the, the winners and losers from the pandemic. And because there's been large infusions of capital um, since the last financial crisis through quantitative easing, um, and now in response to the pa pandemic, that is creating asset inflation in the stock market, property market, and in, in, in various asset markets. And because the rich 
predominantly own these assets, they're benefiting from that, uh, um, those increases. So what we've seen is that although there has been initial losses um, by the super rich, um, the thousand richest people on the planet have recouped their COVID-19 losses within just nine months. Um, whereas agencies like the World Bank estimate that it will take a decade for the world's poorest to recover from the economic impacts of the pandemic. Um, COVID-19 has the potential to increase inequality in almost every country at once, the first time this has happened since records began a century ago. And this isn't by accident. These are policy choices. As I said, the way we organize our capital markets and the way we organize our labor markets are contributing to this massive inequality. Um, we've also seen that a tiny group of about 2,000 billionaires have more wealth that they can spend in a thousand lifetimes, whereas a world with nearly half of humanity forced to scrape by on, on 550 a day. Um, and this has been going on for the last 40 years or so. The richest 1% have earned more than double the income of the bottom half of the global population. Um, and they've also consumed twice as much carbon as the bottom half. And we see this replicated in Ireland. It's a, it's a similar case where we found that Ireland's nine billionaires, uh, according to the Forbes risk list, have seen their fortunes increase by 3.28 billion since March. Um, and just to put that figure in, in perspective, a tenth of this amount would pay for all the COVID-19 vaccines for every person in the Republic. Whereas we've seen, meanwhile, it's essential workers who've actually kept the country going, such as carers, supermarket workers, factory workers. Um, and these essential workers are often not paid very well. Some are on poverty pay um, and are on minimum and low pay wages. So we see this massive inequality being replicated um, and how we respond to that and what the outcome of the pandemic and how we frame and design the recovery from it will determine whether this inequality is, 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 is addressed or not. Um, and I guess the key message in, in putting across these figures is that these aren't accidents of nature, that they're because of policy designs and, and as I said, the structure of our labour and capital markets globally. And if we want to address these issues, we have to change how these um, key markets operate. Absolutely. Um, in the context, I suppose, of the narrative that's out there at the moment, um, and I, you know, you and I spoke before we went on air um, about this more dominant narrative that's taken over in, in the recent past, that Ireland is doing very well, um, that, you know, with the exception of some some issues around the vaccine and some issues around, you know, obviously um, health capacity and, and the schools, that actually the economy is doing very well, um, that our standard of living is very good, that our health index is very good. Um, and it isn't tallying, certainly in terms of the work that we're doing, it doesn't tally with what we know. It doesn't tally with the deprivation data that has actually increased. It doesn't tally with the fact that we don't have the types of basic income, basic services that, that other similar countries or similar economies might have. But there's, there's reference within your report that 87% 
of the economists surveyed felt that income inequality will increase in their country. Is there any data for Ireland for the, to, that, you know, is it possible to isolate the economists from Ireland in relation to that? Were they of a similar view or are they going along, I suppose, with the, the, the more dominant narrative that's out there now? Um, so yes and no is the answer to the um, around Irish economists. We, we contacted a huge array of Irish economists and about eight replied. So the number 85% agreed that income inequality would increase. But because it's such a, a small sample, um, I'm not sure how much we can read into it. Um, but I think to go back to your point about uh, the dominant narrative that we're doing okay, I think the challenge is that both things can be correct. And I think the economy can be doing well and people not doing well. I think the the, the dominant narrative that, that economic welfare determines social welfare and determines welfare for the most lead, least, least well off is, is a quite outdated and has been proven in, in the literature not to necessarily be true, but it's one that still dominates the narrative here in Ireland. Um, and that's, that's disappointing because there's a lot of sophisticated work being done by by policy analysts like Social Justice Ireland and others to show that it's way more complex than this. And it's about how the fruits of economic value and development are, are divided and shared um, that are important. And I think on one respect, Ireland does well. I think it's often pointed out in these debates that Ireland has a quite progressive tax and welfare system. And I think we have to recognise that, that, that that inequality at market level is quite high, but when we take account of the tax and welfare system, inequality is reduced, income inequality is reduced to, to a more average European level. However, I think by just looking at the welfare system and the tax system, we miss a big part of the picture. The other part of the picture is public services, and public services in Ireland aren't nearly as well provisioned or as well, uh, as widely available as other places in Europe that have similar levels of inequality in Ireland. And it's always been a challenge in Ireland. And I think the pandemic, despite um, what, what narrative might be out there, I think has really shown how the dirt of our public services um, has can really impact us, whether it's in terms of our, our childcare system and in terms of our health system, um, you know they're 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 really struggling um, with 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 the pandemic, and I think we'll see it even more so when hopefully the pandemic ends with with mass vaccination. That the pent up demand, both in terms of our health system, but also in our housing system, will make situations extremely bad um, for a lot of people in the country. Um, so I think the debate needs to move on to 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 not just focus on our welfare system and our tax system, but to focus on universal public services um, and, and universal adequate incomes. Um, and whether we have achieved that or not, I think would be a much more fruitful debate. Absolutely. Um, and just, I suppose you mentioned the, the survey of the Irish economists and how 85% of those, albeit from a low number, um, recognise the fact that income inequality will, will increase. Um, were there other Ireland-specific results um, from the report that you can share? 
Um, I think the main one, as I said, was around the divergence um, with the billionaire wealth um, within Ireland compared to the levels of, of income inequality. The, the report itself mostly concentrates on, on global, um, global processes. Um, and it only we, we only looked at Ireland in, in a small amount to, to, to really emphasize that similar um, forces are at play in Ireland. And while the context is different and, and the policy prescriptions might be a little bit different, ultimately the, the, the same political and economic forces are at play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just in terms of framing the recovery, and again, you know, I suppose within the context of Ireland, the Taoiseach's department today, they published the, the consultation on the National Recovery and Resilience Plan. And you're absolutely right in terms of how we frame these things in terms of our environmental sustainability, in terms of our productivity, in terms of our, our social supports would be really, really critical. Um, can you take me through some of Oxfam's recommendations in relation to that, both nationally at an Irish level and, and globally? So I think probably the the biggest political debate, both in Ireland and, and around the world, as hopefully the pandemic ends, will be around what form the recovery should take. And especially in relation to the huge amounts of debt that has been incurred by countries. And I think it's interesting that there's a growing consensus among agencies like the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank, um, even the EU um, identifying that there shouldn't be a return to austerity. Um, thankfully, they've recognised the damage that that has caused and, and that it isn't an appropriate policy prescription um, about you know, 10 or 15 years after the fact. And they've recognised not just the social damage that it's caused, but the political damage um, austerity um, has generated in a number of countries around the world and the political consequences in terms of the rise of populism and the, and the far right. Um, so I think that's a very good point. Unfortunately, that message doesn't seem to have fully translated its way into Irish narratives. We have the constant one about, oh, well, how will we pay back the money without recognising the fact that ultimately public debt never gets paid back. The, the object is to ensure that the you're able to service the interest on it and the size of your public debt corresponds with the size of your economy. Um, and ultimately, while we um, won't know what happens in 10 years' time or 15 years' time um, in terms of interest levels, I think there is an opportunity for Ireland to look at... Um, what investments we need now that we're able to restructure our debt at such low income levels for so for such long periods. Um, I'm not sure this economic and political space will be here again for a very long time. Um, and if we miss this opportunity to look at really investing in the, the transition to a zero uh, carbon economy in terms of a more socially equitable society, um, I think it will be, be a huge miss. The specific 
um, recommendations we're looking at is in terms more globally than Irish space, but I think they, they do apply to Ireland um, in some respects. So one of the big things um, that a lot of the poorest people around the world are challenged with um, is the fact that they don't have a social support system in their country. While there has been challenges in Ireland, at least um, we have some level of social support in terms of increased unemployed payments, etc. Um, but as I said, millions of people around the world don't have this. And, and many of the people that we work with have said that, you know, hunger will get us before this virus gets us because of the dire situation they've been forced in. So we feel that that should be a priority around the world. And one way that this can be paid for is a lot of companies have generated excess profits um, during the, the pandemic. So this is profits way and above what they would normally generate. And usually this has been due to luck, really, because they've been able to, to benefit from the changes, the temporary changes in the economy during the pandemic. Um, and during World War I and World War II, a similar excess profit tax was brought in to help pay for the emergency recovery that needed to happen after World War II. And it would be a similar thing. And the ILO has estimated that such an estimate excess profit tax on just a small amount of the biggest companies. And again, not on their normal profits, but on the excess profits as a result of the pandemic would pay for some level of social protection for everybody in, in low-income countries. So I think that's something that Ireland should definitely be supporting um, because it would target the most the most people most affected by the, the pandemic. I think in Ireland's case, how we spend our money in terms of generating the recovery has to have key policy um, responses in mind. I think if we're going to be supporting and subsidising sectors of the economy to, to recover, priority must be given to small businesses who have the least ability to cope with the crisis. And any public support for larger business should be conditional on measures that hold the interests of workers, farmers, um, and that help build a sustainable future. So the government now will have leverage over sectors of the economy who haven't always been good social actors in terms of workers' rights and in terms of the environment. So the government should use that leverage um, as, 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 as part of the recovery. Um, I think the other thing is the government has committed in the programme for government to develop a new set of indicators to monitor and progress societal well-being and reduce inequality. And I know Social Justice Ireland has, has been advocating for this for, for many years. And it really is only the starting block to address these issues unless we have the proper indicators, the proper framework to, to look at societal well-being and inequality and then measure that appropriately and change policy um, depending on how that's developed. It's very hard to have fruitful debates and, and, and policy interventions. Um, and I think a big thing in determining what type of indicators we used is the issue of planetary boundaries. Um, whatever economic and social recovery we have, 
has to happen within planetary boundaries. And we all know that we're not meeting that. No economy around the world is keeping within uh, planetary boundaries, both in terms of carbon emissions, but also in, in other pollutants um, and an extraction of, of materials. And whatever recovery we have has to factor that into mind or else we will have unsustainable prosperity and will come to, to a brick wall um, quite soon. I think, like we've said around the world, the Irish government also needs to significantly increase investments in public services and social infrastructure, especially the care economy, while prioritising gender budgeting and the equality budgeting process. And finally, the, the thing that I mentioned at the start about uh, vaccines inequalities, I think the Irish government should support calls for a global people's vaccine to ensure COVID-19 vaccines are made a global public good, free of charge to the public and fairly dis distributed and based on need around the world. Thank you so much, Michael. That has been absolutely fascinating. It's been brilliant to, to talk to you about this. I mean, you're right. Social Justice Ireland has been working in terms of, you know, just taxation. We've been looking at public services, decent income um, and even down to to the moves that were made, say, after last year's budget, um, where there was a document published in relation to well-being indicators. And it was something that we we welcomed. There hasn't been any move on it since. And it is that old saying of if it's not measured or if it's not counted, does it count? Um, it's, it's really important to get that part right and to start holding governments accountable to what they have, have set out in terms of, of you know, the well-being of, of citizens nationally and globally. Um, I'd really like to thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For information on a range of policy areas, please do check out our website, socialjustice.ie. As always, if you have any ideas or suggestions for our podcasts, please do let us know by emailing us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.